According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs 1.1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And by the way, just in the last week, I have read at least one author who is absolutely thoroughly convinced that the phrase king of Israel must grammatically be connected to Solomon, that you cannot connect it grammatically to David. And uh, uh, well, okay. <laughs> so put your comma where you put your comma and uh, understand the verse for what it is. But Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, or Solomon, son of David, Solomon, king of Israel. And it could be understood, I believe, either way, depending on how you punctuate it and how you read it. And I think you can read it either way in the Hebrew as well, but that's just my limited Hebrew understanding. And uh, I will bow to the experts that know better than I do. I don't think it functionally matters. They were both kings of Israel, so who cares um, when it comes right down to it. All right. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to to the youth, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction." And if it takes us a year to do these seven verses, uh, that'll be time well spent because these seven verses set the table for the entire book. An understanding of what this book is about is given right here in these introductory expressions. Every one of these to, to know, to discern, to receive, every one of these purpose clauses, every one of these goals or objectives, this is what Solomon tells you the book of Proverbs will do for you. If you receive the book of Proverbs, if you study the book of Proverbs, if you live the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs will do this. God's wisdom will do this to you and uh, equip you in uh, all of these applications. All right, before we get started, let's take time for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Mighty Father, we do thank you this morning for the truth of your word, the privilege we have to assemble together. This is a grace provision, Father, that we have not earned or deserved, and yet in your grace and your loving kindness, you have made the word of God available on this day. So we ask for your hand of blessing to hedge us about, protect us, also uh, the parking lot and everything else, Father. Watch over uh, all things. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we left off almost uh, having completed the first point of study. Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. We're going to move on in point two to the Proverbs of Solomon. But before we do that, though, there's one final subpoint we have to deal with. Under subpoint A, we looked at the Davidic paternity and the Bathshebic maternity. And I do expect to claim royalties on that. The adjectival form of Bathsheba is Bathshebic. So you have the Davidic paternity and the Bathshebic maternity, both of which were uh, influential in David's or in Solomon's upbringing. That they grounded him in wisdom. They grounded him in the fear of the Lord. Under point B, David's greatest failure was Bathsheba, and we took the time to go back to Second Samuel eleven and examine that. Uh, God's judgment upon David created hardship and heartache for his polygamous house. In fact, he lived with that divine discipline for the rest of his days. Point C, David's greatest blessing, temporal life blessing, was Bathsheba. His grace upon them permitted the impartation of divine wisdom to David's final batch of children. And the role of David and Bathsheba in training up those children in uh, God's wisdom is pretty clear when you look at the uh, references to my son in uh, the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. We finally ran out of time last week as we were looking at point D, uh, reviewing the genealogy of David. It was a study we did in the Life of David series here on Wednesday mornings. And uh, there is the series of messages available to listen to on MP3 from the website, as well as the notebook that is available to download and print off if you like, 
or the uh, PDF notebook you can read electronically. Also uh, very helpful is the Logos Bible Facts Diagrams that, uh, that are available in the Logos Bible software. Which brings us now to point E. The uh, recognition here that uh, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, with respect to all kings of Israel. Point E. Davidic kings are always compared to their father. Davidic kings are always compared to David, their father. And of course, Solomon is the literal son. David is is the literal father of Solomon in in direct single-generation father-to-son procreation. But every descendant, the grandson, the great-grandson, the great-great-grandson, the great-great-great-grandson, okay? We can keep doing this all the way to Zedekiah. the great 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 grandson is always refers to David as his father. Okay, and this is a Hebrew usage. It's common. Uh, we might, in English, prefer to use the term forefather to at least give the idea that it's several generations back. It's several. Um, you know, it's a, it's an ancestor of whatever length of time back. You know, by the time you get to the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., you've got half a millennium that's passed since the death of David. You're dealing with 500 years from David and Solomon down to the fall of the temple. But still, it's David, your father, is how it is uh, uh, described. And, and it's common. Uh, I think it even comes across in, uh, in the New Testament. The, the Greek usage will borrow from the Hebrew usage. Uh, how does the Gospel of Matthew begin? It begins with uh, the records of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right? You know, those two forefathers are, are so significant in the unfolding plan of God that you understand the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Of course, there were scads of generations in between. But he's the son of David, he's the son of Abraham. And those two titles become uh, significant in the um, understanding of Scripture, the understanding of the covenant relations in the plan of God. So let's look at a few of these, or the ones that are on the screen anyway. Uh, starting at 1 Kings chapter 11, the recognition that Davidic kings are always compared to their father. 1 Kings 11.4. Got a couple of chapters here in 1 Kings and then uh, four chapters in 2 Kings. First Kings chapter 11. And these are uh, good to look at because, I don't know about you, but uh, I suspect <laughs> um, that from, uh, from Adam to David, if you want to compare our, our biblical literacy, if you want to compare our Old Testament understanding, and, and you put Adam to Solomon on one, on one part of the scale, and you put Solomon to Malachi on the other part of the scale, guess which way that scale is going to tip? As far as our Bible knowledge, as far as our understanding, uh, I, I don't think there's any question. We are, we are top-heavy in um, Adam to Solomon. We are top-heavy in the Pentateuch, top-heavy in, in that portion of the Old Testament up to the fall of Jerusalem and not as solid on the captivity, unless you've done some Daniel studies, um, the post-captivity, all right, in terms of the post-exilic prophets and that period of, of the Old Testament. So anyway, as we go through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zephaniah, we're probably dealing with a part of the Old Testament we're not as familiar with. All right, First Kings chapter 11 uh, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. And the first recorded marriage that we have for, so- for Solomon is, in fact, the political marriage that he had to the daughter of Pharaoh. And look at these foreign women, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Nothing wrong with uh, uh, interracial marriage, as it were, or cross-cultural marriage, as it were. It's not banned in Scripture, but... These are the nations that the Lord had warned them about, in some cases, with respect to their idolatry. And from the nations concerning which, as it says in verse 2, 
the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. So if you end up with a believer from one of those nations, Ruth was a Moabitess, but Ruth was a believer. And Ruth chose to identify with Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And so, yes, Ruth is racially Moabite, but she is saved and she has a biblical um, priority for the scriptures. And uh, same thing with Uriah. Uriah, yes, he's a Hittite, but he becomes a believer and he becomes um, connected to Israel. He lives in Israel. He lives among the Jewish people. Well, so hopefully we understand the distinction here. So uh, they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. And so Solomon held fast to these in love. And here's how he destroys his soul capacity, even as David did. And it gets worse. See, the sins of the father are multiplied among the uh, later generations. So he had 700 wives, (laughs) and they are recorded as princesses. 300 concubines, not recorded as princesses. And uh, his wives turned his heart away. Just as Scripture said would happen, it happened. God is faithful. If you uh, think you can play with fire, you can't play with fire. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, to Yahweh his Elohim. Notice, here's the comparison, as the heart of David his father had been. Now this is key. This is absolutely key. Because uh, the Scripture's not saying that David was perfect. David had failures. David had some unbelievable failures like the Bathsheba failure. But that failure which he repented of, that failure which he learned from, which he attempted to instill upon his son. See, this is what we want to embrace. This is what we want to keep in our thinking as we work our way through these early chapters. Because these early chapters of Proverbs are parents pleading with their children against harlotry, fornication, adultery, and the damage, the soul damage that's done by defying the will of God for marital blessings. And uh, we see that the wisest man who ever lived blew it bigger than anyone else related to that. So Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, or, I'm sorry, simply Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Uh, Milcom requires child sacrifice. All right. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, did not follow his Lord fully. Again, as David, his father, had done. And Solomon built a high place for Hamash, another uh, burn-your-child-in-the-fire false god. The detestable idol of Moab on the mountain, which is east of Jerusalem. See, this is the god that Ruth said she wanted no part of. Ruth uh, rejected this god to serve Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. It's uh, sad. I mean, it's remarkable. What, What Muslims do to this day worshiping the moon god of, of, uh, of uh, Allah. Abraham left the moon god when he left Ur of the Chaldees. And uh, yet the descendants of, uh, the Arabic descendants of Ishmael um, want to go back to that idol that Abraham left. All right, verse 8 says, Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods, and uh, so forth. When, when Solomon gets his discipline, look down to verse 11. Uh, so the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this, and you have not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And so this is uh, some of the mitigating value of the love between the Lord and David in that the judgment upon Solomon would not be inflicted until the days of Rehoboam, until the days of his son. And then ten tribes are are stripped away and and sent to the north and two tribes, only David and uh, Benjamin, or only Judah and Benjamin, Benjamin remain uh, to his son Rehoboam to reign over. All right. But notice, 
is the Davidic covenant invalidated? We talked about this last week. The fact, my, my favorite, I mean, it's an ugly chapter. Second Samuel is an ugly chapter. The whole Uriah, Bathsheba thing is, 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 is horrendous to read through. But we can celebrate the fact that chapter 11 comes after chapter 7, that the Davidic covenant preceded the adultery and the murder, that the uh, divine discipline upon David uh, recognizes that that conditional covenant for, uh, unconditional covenant for David is eternal. It's not void. It's not replaced. It's not scrapped. The uh, discipline upon David that the sword would not depart from your house and that uh, enemies will arise from among your own household and so forth and the, the, the terrible things that would happen to his, to his harem. Um, none of that invalidates the coming of the Messiah, the promise of the Christ, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, all of the unconditional promises that are made to David, that are made to Israel, see? And it's just stunning that folks today will, will throw away all that with respect to the replacement theology when, uh, to me, it's as clear as day given the, uh, the things that we look at here in, in uh, discipline upon David, discipline upon Solomon and recognition, those covenants are still in effect. That you could, you could blow it as bad as David did, blow it as bad as Solomon did, and it doesn't thwart the plan of God one moment. See, the Davidic covenant is still an unconditional, eternal, absolute, everlasting covenant. So there's the example of Solomon. Chapter 15 of 1 Kings. 1 Kings 15, verse 3, verse 5, verse 11. Now we have um, another king. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Remember, he was king in the north, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. He is the one that ripped the kingdom away from Rehoboam. Abijam became king over Judah, and he reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him. Uh, Rehoboam, um, Rehoboam didn't do so well. In fact, if I back up a little bit, you get Rehoboam and his, uh, what's described in his reign at the end of chapter 14. 1421, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama, the Ammonitess. So uh, remember Solomon had married all those foreign women, including an Ammonitess woman. And the Ammonitess was named Nama. And uh, Thus we have the birth of Rehoboam. And Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done with the sins with which they committed. And they built for themselves high places and sacred pillars and asherim on every high hill and beneath every luxuriant tree. And so uh, discipline comes on Rehoboam. Uh, Verse 24, did you follow me? I backed up to chapter 14 to look at Rehoboam. Chapter 14, verse 24, there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. Nasty study there, all right? They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. And it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, didn't take long, did it? That uh, Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. Now, the king of Egypt, there was supposed to be a political alliance with Egypt. Solomon's first wife was the daughter of the Pharaoh. But uh, it wasn't the son of the daughter of the Pharaoh that became king, was it? It was the son of the Ammonitess that became king in terms of Rehoboam here. And so uh, Shishak comes up and he takes away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, took everything, even taking all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. And then, uh, of course, he takes the Ark of the Covenant and he hides it in the well of souls, according to the great theology of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay? <laughs> he built a special map room in Tanis. All right. Well, okay, that's not Bible. That's not in this verse. He did plunder the house of the Lord. It's not clear that this is where the ark disappeared. The ark is not mentioned in this verse. All right. So, um, verse 29 the rest of the acts of Rehoboam, all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. 
And Rehoboam slept with his fathers, was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonitess, and Abijam his son became king in his place. So we have David, the best king of all, Solomon, who started well, but then ended horribly. And then Rehoboam, it looks like he was never good at all. It seems like he was, he was a train wreck from the, right, from the very beginning. All right, and then we have the fourth king now, uh, Abijam. And now we cross into chapter 15. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah. And he reigned three years in Jerusalem. That's a pretty short reign. So how do we go from 40 years to 40 years to 17 years to three years? All right, it's just, it's a downhill slide. All right, when you watch your nation plunging into darkness, it's not, uh, it's not enjoyable. So uh, he walked in all the sins of his father, Rehoboam, which he had committed before him and his heart committed before him. In other words, in his presence, teaching him how to do this. And his heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh his God, like the heart of his father David. Again, David is the standard. David is the benchmark by which all Davidic kings are evaluated. But notice though, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem for David's sake. For the sake of not only the personal love that Yahweh has with David, but also the unconditional covenant that was made with David. He cannot bring the Davidic line to an end. Under normal circumstances, the sins of the father, Yahweh only has patience for four generations. All right? The sins of the father is only to the third and to the fourth generation, and that's when Yahweh cuts it off. That's where he says no more, and he will chop off a dynasty, he will replace, a, put in a new man or, or do something right? Can't do that with the Davidic line because the Davidic line has an unconditional covenant attached to it. So for David's sake, Yahweh, his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him to establish Jerusalem. Pray that God gives President Obama a lamp in Washington, D.C. Somebody, a person, a thing, an event, a circumstance, something that will shine light, the light of truth, into an administration that otherwise doesn't seem to have any. Because David did what was right. Notice, here's the, here's the verse. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except, except, okay, not just my opinion here, in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Scripture itself illustrates that the Uriah episode was David's greatest failure. All right? That the, the Uriah and Bathsheba episode was the greatest moment where David himself was under the imminent sin unto death that God was going to kill David right there on the spot um, because of the uh, adultery and the murder and giving the enemies of Yahweh occasion to blaspheme. So keep in mind that first, I think 1 Kings 15.5 is an extraordinary um, testimony to uh, the Davidic standard. All right. Um, there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. We said that already. And the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. All right, so Jew on Jew violence, the ten tribes versus the two tribes, and uh, ugliness throughout the divided kingdom. So Abijam sleeps, verse 8, with his fathers. They buried him in the city of David, and Asa, his son, became king in his place. It's interesting, how many kings did Jeroboam outlive, right? After the days of Solomon, the kingdom was split, and you have Jeroboam in the north with ten tribes. You have Rehoboam in the south with two tribes, but then you have another king, and then you have another king, and you have another king, and you still have Jeroboam up here reigning an awful long time in the north. All right. Verse 9, we read, in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel. Wow, why does he get to reign 20 years? Rehoboam only reigned 17 years, and, and uh, Abijam only reigned, what did we say, six years, three years? Short time, okay? Three years. <clears throat> now we get a long reign. Remember, because 
a lamp is going to be provided. Not for his sake, for David's sake. So in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa, the lamp by the name of Asa. Asa began to reign as king of Judah, and he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. He gets to reign for a Davidic length plus one. All right, 41 years. And his mother's name was Makah, another Makah, the daughter of Abi Shalom. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And how do you define what was right? According to the Davidic standard, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. He put away the male cult prostitutes from the land, the dogs as they're called elsewhere. Put them away. Removed all the idols which his fathers had made. He also removed Makah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah. And uh, Asa cut down her horrid image and burned it at the brook Kidron. Remember, there's a dynamic at work with the queen mother as Solomon put Bathsheba on a throne next to his throne. But then a problem arose when uh, Adonijah tried to manipulate Bathsheba into giving him Abishag for his wife. And... um, Asa realizes, you know what, Makah is going to be a terrible queen mother because she was married to a terrible king father, <laughs> right? And uh, that's just got to go, okay? And, and you expect, since his dad only reigned for three years, uh, that his wife, is, or you know, the mother here, queen mother, is not going to be that old, uh, that she could theoretically be the queen mother for a long, long time. No, that's got to stop. Okay, didn't do everything right, we're told. Um, he, he did a lot right. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. But the high places were not taken away. He removed what he could and then uh, did the best that he could. So then he brought into the house of the Lord the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils and so forth. And there was war between Asa and Basha king of Israel all their days. By this time now, there's a new king in the north. All right, so there's verse 3, verse 5, verse 11. In all these cases, we see that David is the standard. Uh, Second Kings, it continues. Second Kings 14, 3. Of course, we've passed several chapters. We've passed several generations. In 2 Kings 14, in the second year of Joash, son of Joahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. And he was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jehoiadin of Jerusalem. And he, oh, how about that? Married a local girl. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did according to all that Joash his father had done. So, Basically good, somewhat good, similar to Joash. Joash was a good king, not entirely like David, his father. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. And uh, so forth. So good, but not like David. He was Joash-like, but not David-like. Chapter 16 and verse 2. Another example. In the 17th year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, became king. And Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. So what you can do is you can just make your own family tree, make your own genealogy, uh, list all the kings from David to Zedekiah, and then just color them. You know, make a color code for a good king like David, make another color for a bad king, and uh, you'll find that they'll go back and forth. They'll have their ups and their downs, all right? In the south, they will have their ups and downs. In the north, you can do the same thing from Jeroboam down to Hosea, the last king of Israel before they were swept away by the Assyrians, but, but don't bother coloring them. They were all bad, okay? Every northern king was wicked. The only possible slight kind of sort of exception is that uh, Ahab did have an end-of-life repentance. Ahab had an end-of-life, deathbed repentance. Um, and that's the only kind of sort of half exception to uh, the rule in the north. 
So uh, Ahaz was 20. Uh, he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. That's 16.2 here, 2 Kings 16.2. As his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his son pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. So child sacrifice. And you might expect uh, if, if you're going to take part in the fertility cults of these nations, there's going to be a lot of pregnancies. There's going to be a lot of unwanted uh, offspring and uh, a lot of child sacrifice to, uh, to uh, deal with that. Finally then, uh, 18.3 and 22.2. Hezekiah. We're going to be seeing a lot of Hezekiah in our upcoming Isaiah series. It came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, the last of the kings of Israel, that Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. And so uh, he becomes king when the final king of Israel is already king. That means Hezekiah is the one who sees the fall of that northern kingdom and then becomes kind of scared that maybe the southern kingdom will also fall. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And uh, that becomes interesting because you try to track all the different Zechariahs in the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. So gold standard, he rose up to the Davidic benchmark. He removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah, also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. You see how long idolatry can linger? Um, this bronze serpent Moses had made? For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. So they made an idol out of it. And all through the centuries after Moses, this, by the way, includes David's reign, Solomon's reign, all the good kings' reign, there had been a little cultic center set up. Israel went to uh, bow to the uh, bronze serpent. They called it Nehushtan. He trusted the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him. So not only does he rise up to the Davidic standard, but he becomes really second to David in the greatest of all the Davidic kings, that all the Davidic kings after him don't rise to his level in the, uh, in the Davidic uh, benchmark. Right? And remember whose days it was that added to the book of Proverbs? It was the days of, of Hezekiah when they found supplementary uh, uh, Solomonic Proverbs and expanded upon the uh, wisdom literature tradition. After him there was none like him among the kings of Judah or among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. Very Davidic-like. And he, he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. And it's interesting because I think Hezekiah with the prophet Isaiah is a marvelous picture, of, similar to David and the prophet uh, Samuel and then later uh, the prophet uh, Nathan. I think it's a remarkable tandem when a godly king is humbled before the prophet that God lifts up to, uh, to minister to him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from watchtowers to uh, to fortified city and so forth. Anyway, there's other aspects there. Like I said, we're going to have a lot of Hezekiah studies coming up in in uh, the Isaiah series, uh, and then finally twenty two two Second Kings twenty two two. Who were the kings after Hezekiah? Well. Manasseh, and then Josiah. Yeah, Manasseh was was awful. He did have a, a deathbed repentance, though, so there's something to be thankful for. Then there's Amon, then there's Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. So he rose to the Davidic standard, not quite as high as Hezekiah did, because remember there's nobody after Hezekiah that matches him, 
But he does reach the Davidic standard. But he will have one issue, which is kind of a matter of folly and uh, kind of sad. What happens here with uh, Josiah? All right, well, there it is. Davidic kings are always compared to their father. And so the significance of the father, David, and king of Israel is that we're, we have to, in, in the reading of uh, Proverbs, in the reading of Song of Solomon, in the reading of Ecclesiastes, in the reading of um, Psalm 127, in reading of the, uh, anything that Solomon wrote, we realize that he is the son of David, king of Israel, who failed to rise to David's standard of righteousness, who failed to follow David's example, who rejected all of the my son warnings that David and Bathsheba ever bestowed upon him. That he started well, that at least to the point of writing the book of Proverbs, he was doing fine. It's not until he gets to the end of his life and starts marrying all those women that there's uh, a downhill slide from there. All right. Which gets us to point two in the outline. I, I believe I'm going to maintain a different outline for each chapter. So uh, when we get to chapter two, we'll start it over again. But for chapter one, anyway. Um, point two the Proverbs of Solomon. The Proverbs of Solomon. And we need to ask ourselves well, what are these? What is a proverb? He wrote 3,000 of them. What are they? This book is called Mishle Shalomo. What does that mean? <laughs> what are Mishalim? What is a Mashal? So sub-point A, the he- uh, we're going to take a look at the Hebrew and Greek vocabulary because it's confusing. I think it's tremendously confusing. And forget bringing it from Hebrew into English. Let's start by bringing it from Hebrew into Greek and see what the Septuagint did with it. See what the New Testament does with it. They do different things with it because of the nature of the Hebrew mashal. I believe the Hebrew mashal defies attempts to try to give a single word definition. That even a word like proverb is going to fall short of what a mashal is all about. And we might do better if we just simply kept it as a mashal. And just learn to embrace the Hebrew mashal and quit trying to put it into an English translation. And uh, so forth. In any event. So subpoint A, we're going to take a look at Hebrew and Greek vocabulary. And then we're going to look at some examples and try to wrap our minds about, around what these are. Um, this book is called the Mishle Shalomo. The Mishle Shalomo. In fact, that's what you have there on your screen. Right? Dan can read it. The Mishle Shalomo. And so they belong to Solomon, either from him or by him or to him. Some might speculate that they were dedicated to him based on all the Proverbs that he... I, I reject that. They, these are his. They belong to him. They are the Mishle, the Mashal of, or the Mishalim of. So what is a Mashal? What are Mishalim? Well, glad you asked. Mashal. This is the verb that it comes from. The verb that it comes from. M-A-S-H-A-L. Mashal. And, and I try to be consistent with my pathaks in my comments. I try to, uh, if you see that little bar across the first A, and there's no bar across the second A, that, that's my little memory jog in transliteration that there are different vowels. That's why I do ma shall instead of ma shall. When you get to the noun, it's ma shall. They both have the macrons across. All right? And that's just the difference between a verb and a noun. And none of them were in the original manuscripts anyway. <laughs> when it comes right down to it, these are the vowels that were added later. But ma shall, the verb, and ma shall, the noun, are interesting. Uh, 49.10 and 49.12 are your Strong's Concordance numbers, as you see on the screen. So point one is mashal, point two is mashal. Again, M-A-S-H-A-L, M-A-S-H-A-L, but they're different A's. Okay, 
18 uses for the verb, 38 uses for the noun. The idea of the verb, though, and, and this may help. This is where my mind tries to wrap around it. Okay, The idea of mashal is to be like something, to represent something. The, the core idea of the verb is to represent or to be like. And, and I think this sample of, of verses will do us good to see these things because um, it's going to help us to describe what a proverb is. A proverb is a, a saying that tells you what something is like. And so the comparison of, of likeness uh, is, is a good thing. And every proverb is a likeness comparison, uh, either in, in, in parallel or in antithet- antithetical parallelism. All right? Every proverb tells you what something is like. It tells you what the word of wisdom is like or what the, the course of folly is like. It tells you what the sluggard is like. It tells you what the diligent person is like. It tells you what the fool is like. Every proverb, you can write every proverb or think of every proverb in a likeness of some sort. That it's like that, it's like that, it's like that. And by making the likeness connection, it helps to stick in your memory. It's almost like proverbs are a memnonic discourse by using a likeness to fix in your memory so that you don't forget it. Does that make sense? All right. Don't ask me why memnonic is such a hard word to remember. You would think that they would create a better word for that. All right. Mashal. Let's look at Job 30. We'll see. I mean, there's a handful of these. There's 18 altogether in the Old Testament. I put seven of them on uh, on the board. But in Job 30, in verse 19, we have the verb mashal. And in a very clear way, part of his lament, part of uh, his... Uh, Complaining here. Don't want to read the whole thing, but um, yeah, let's just try to limit it. He says in verse 16, My soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have seized me. At night it pierces my bones within me, and my gnawing pains take no rest. By a great force, my garment is distorted. It binds me about as a collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire. See, he he knows that God himself is against him. He has cast me into the mire. And I have, mashal, here's the verb, I have become like dust and ashes. I have become like dust and ashes. What do you do with dust and ashes? You trample it. You throw it out. It's not good for anything. I have become like dust and ashes. I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you, you uh, turn your attention against me. So we have the description here of what he has become like. I have become like dust and ashes. And this is the verb that's behind our noun for proverb. It is to be like something. It, is, it, is, you know, it may not be true, but you think it's true. Okay? And as such, then the likeness is uh, is clear. Psalm twenty eight one. Psalm twenty eight one. Another example. To, um, again, here's another believer who thinks his prayers aren't being answered. To you, O Lord, I call, my rock. Do not be deaf to me, for if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Again, the verb is mashal, and it means to be like. And he says, God, if you don't hear my prayers, then I will be like dead people. Okay? I will be like dead people. Dead people don't pray. So hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help. I don't want to become like a dead person. A dead person that doesn't pray. So there's the verb again. It means to be like. To become like or to be like. To draw a likeness. Uh, Joe, uh, still in Psalms 49.12. There's two uses in Psalm 49. Verse 12 and verse 20. Hmm. Psalm 49. 
the Psalm of the Sons of Korah, and uh, it's interesting. In fact, this is a great psalm to connect with Proverbs. As he says here, my mouth, in verse 3, will speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart will be understanding. So we're going to look at in Proverbs, to know wisdom, to know understanding. It's the purpose of the book. I will incline my ear to a proverb, to a mashal. I'm sorry, a mashal. I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? So here is a, this is a psalm. You sing this, but it's a psalm that's grounded in wisdom. And so um, all these things, and you go through affliction. Verse 10, he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and the senseless alike perish. They leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that the houses are forever and the dwelling places to the all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. Okay. You know, I mean, at the end of, at the end of your life, as wise as you are and all the wealth you've accumulated and then all the monuments your name is on, you're still going to the same place the fool's going to. Man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. He is like, there's Mashal. He is like the beasts that perish. At the end of his life, what happens to the, to the man? Well, what happens to the dog when he dies? Okay. What happens to any animal when he dies? All right. Still in Psalm 49, it's verse 20. Man in his pump, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Man in his pump. I think it says more about pomp than it does about men, but in any event. Psalm 143, verse 7. Another example. The verb mashal, where we are describing likeness. Describing likeness. Notice man is not an animal, but he can be like an animal in certain ways. Psalm 143, in verse 7. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will become like those who go down to the pit. Very similar to the other Davidic psalm that we looked at. So becoming like something. The verb means to become like something. Isaiah 14.10. This is in the rebuke against Satan. And this is the taunt against the king of Babylon. In Isaiah 14.4, we talk about this being a taunt. Well, it means it's a Stay tuned because it's a proverb. It's a mashal, translated taunt. Take up this mashal against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased and all of this uh, celebration over his downfall. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. They're going to roll out the red carpet. Sheol can't wait for you to get here. Okay? And all of this. You know, news about Robin Williams yesterday and all the excitement about when he arrives. Really? Okay. Well, whatever. I hope he's in heaven. Don't know that. Um, But excitement about, glad you're finally here. Now heaven will finally be a funny place. You know, you make a great addition to the comedy of of heaven. I mean, what what are we saying? Well, here's a taunt when uh, Satan arrives in Sheol. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth, all the Nephilim and the great heroes of the past ages. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones and they will all respond and say to you, even you have been mashal, or not mashal, even you have been made weak as we, you have mashal, become like us. Your pomp, And the music of your harps have brought you down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you. Worms are your covering. (laughs) I love that. All right. Glad to have you here. Your room is prepared. Here's your maggot blanket and your worm bed. You have become like us. Mashal. There is now a comparison between Satan and his confining in Sheol and all of these... uh, folks that are already there the last example is 46 5 isaiah 46 5 
And it's, uh, it's a rebuke. Because remember, Yahweh says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. So who would you try to make like me? Because there's nobody who is like me. Who do you try to make like me? As he says here. Um, to whom would you liken me? Mashal. Uh, actually, one, I'm not sure which one of these is Mashal. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? I think it's that last one there that's actually the Mashal. One of those. In any event, the point is you're taking something that is of no comparison and you're trying to make a comparison, right? And just the very act of doing that is the Mashal activity. The attempt to take something that's not and compare it to something else. That's the mashal activity. The mashal activity is a likeness or a comparison to represent or to be like. And maybe it's good, maybe it's not so good. Maybe it's actually, maybe it's a terrible likeness. But it works for you, so you use it. <laughs> okay? Whatever that may be. You can yourself draw a likeness. You can yourself make a comparison. And even if it's a terrible comparison, if it works for you, then it has improved your memory. If it works for you, then it, then it uh, will make it a memorable saying. Which leads us then to mashal. I'm sorry, mashal. The noun, number 4912. And there are 38 of them in the uh, 38 uses in the Hebrew Old Testament. Mashal. And it's variously translated proverb, but sometimes it's translated parable, sometimes it's translated taunt, sometimes it's translated discourse or byword. There's a variety of readings on mashal. And that variety, I think, is testimony to the fact that... um, we have a tough time trying to render it with a single English word. Like in the, the one we just saw a moment ago in Isaiah 14, take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Um, we, would, we would really struggle to say, take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. And then what we read afterwards doesn't seem to be a proverb. It also doesn't seem to be a parable. It also doesn't seem to be a riddle. All right? So taunt seems to be appropriate. But then that begs the question, then, well, what is the mashal anyway? (laughs) The mashal is a memorable saying. And it might be a short snippet, it might be a long song, it might be a story. And then depending on the form it takes, we may give it different words besides proverb. If it's a story, we might call it a parable instead of a proverb. If it's just a short statement, we might call it a a proverb. If it's a, a rebuke, a scathing rebuke, we might call it a taunt. All right. Mashal. 38 times where it's rendered proverb or parable. Here's the uses of it in uh, 1 Kings 4.32 where we're told that Solomon was the author of some 3,000 proverbs. He also wrote a number of songs. Psalms were told. A number of riddles, I think it also says there. I forget, 1 Kings 4. I've seen this a couple times now. All right. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east, all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than the guys listed there. And uh, his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke, spoke 3,000 proverbs. Did he write all those or did he just speak all those? And his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds, of creeping things. So he had a vast um, frame of reference for not only biblical wisdom, but also secular wisdom in terms of botany and zoology and uh, the, the natural sciences and so forth. And men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. 
Psalm 49.4, we saw already, as we read in Psalm 49, uh, he said he was going to speak to them in a proverb. Um, Proverbs 1.1, the, the, the Mishalim of Shalomo, the Proverbs of Solomon. Also verse 6, to know the meaning of a proverb. I mean, what good is it to memorize it if you don't know what it means? You can recite it, but how do you live it? How do you understand it? To understand a proverb and a figure. So it's used in verse 1 and used in verse 6. It's also used in the headings of chapter 10 and chapter 25. It's also used a couple times in Proverbs 26. Verse 7 and verse 9. This is where we have, uh, in Proverbs 26, we have in verse 4, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Be like him. Got that? Then verse 5 says, Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. So back-to-back verses. One says, don't answer the guy. The other says, answer him. Well, which is it? Both. Either. Depending. Right? Time and place. Timing is everything. Uh, he cuts off his own feet, not stupid, and drinks violence. Who does that? Who sends a message by the hands of a fool. Okay, So don't send a message by the hands of a fool. Like the legs which are useless to the lame, so is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Hmm. So you can know proverbs and still be a fool. Verse 9, like a thorn which falls into the hand of a drunkard. So is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Neither one of those is good. But you see the likeness in all of these. The likeness. Like a dog that returns to its vomit. Well, what's that like? Well, that's like a fool who repeats his folly. So every proverb is a likeness. Every proverb is supposed to make a connection with something else that helps you to remember it. We'll see more of those. Finally, Ecclesiastes 12.9. get past uh, Proverbs, you get Ecclesiastes. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many Proverbs. So he may not actually be the author of all of them. There were some that he pondered. There were others that he searched out. And then all of them he arranged preacher also sought to find delightful words. Ooh, what are those? (laughs) They're different from Proverbs. Proverbs aren't always delightful. Doctrine is not always fun. But we need them. All right? I think the problem is, is preachers nowadays, they just want the delightful words. Never mind whether they're wise or not. Never mind whether they're God-breathed, whether they're edifying, whether they're profitable. He also sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Okay, when we come back next week, um, we say, well, that's simple. I get that. Proverbs are mishalim. Got that. Simple enough. Well, not so much. Wait till we see all the usages of them that are not rendered as proverb, like taunt and byword and maxim and all these other ones. And then what happens when we get into the Septuagint? And what happens when we get into the New Testament? Why are they using different words in the New Testament? Why are they using different words in the Septuagint? We're going to have to look at the paroimia, and we're going to have to look at the parabole. And actually, parabole is our word for parable. And that's the one that more often than not is what mashal becomes. Mashal becomes parable. Jesus was a great teacher of Proverbs because Jesus was a great teacher of parables. All right? And the parallel between Solomon and Jesus is extraordinary. When you look at... uh, Solomon's use of mashal, or mashalim, and Jesus' use of parables. In fact, the actual title, paroimia, for um, proverb is uh, not used as often. Five uses, as opposed to the 50 uses that parabole is used. So we'll come back next week and look at those two. And then... um, We'll bring up the wheel, which should be helpful to us, 
out of time. We'll bring up the wheel and we'll show you the different uses of mashal that are not rendered as proverb. And we'll take a look at the discourses, the parables, the bywords, and the taunts. We've already seen one of the three taunts. But we'll see the different non-proverbial mashalim. And we'll realize that mashalim is bigger than a proverb. It's bigger than a parable. It's bigger than a taunt. It's bigger than, it's a, it's a much larger scope thing that is rendered in very particular ways from time to time. And if that makes any kind of sense, then we will have achieved something by next week. <laughs> okay? Father, be faithful. Guide us in these things. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father. And uh, if we're making things more complicated than they need to be, then make them simpler. Uh, make the crooked ways straight. Don't make the straight ways crooked, Father, as we uh, study your truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.